program for the one-footed. Please, another touch of that delicate vial. Just the plucking in the wind of the sound of lost and forgotten dreams. Oh, that's right. That's right. That couldn't be better. That could not know more properly say it. I can hear it now. I can almost see it. Feel it by George. Taste it. Almost. But not quite. Well, maybe almost. Yes. Almost. Don't you don't you worry, someday it'll become clear. Nobody's gonna push it around all the time that way. It could no more be put. Possibly more beautiful. Almost by George. You know, I figure if if you could somehow work out some way or some, some other kind of a thing like a, some kind of a machine or something or some sort of a color that you can never understand or imagine some kind of color we've never seen before some sound that's never been heard somehow if you could put it all together you could say it almost there have been a couple of guys that have almost done it you know Almost. So close it really bugs you. So finally you want to... You know, you want to bust it all up. Push it around. Holler and yell. It's no good. Got to start over again. Tear it up and start over again. Try to put it together, you know. Because there's no doubt about it. There's, it has to fit. It has to work out somehow. It can't just be laying there all, all over the place. No answers. Stuff, words, letters, and everything. It's gotta gotta work out somehow. There's gotta be a reason, you know. If there's a reason, it has to be able to be put it down into a formula or something. I'll be able to put it together. One time, of course, it's silly to hear this story, you know, it's a ridiculous nutty story. I was sitting there and the guy says, he once heard this ridiculous nutty story. He says this famous scholar went to this place with this big mountain. And he climbed all the way up to the top of the mountain. It took him 50 years or something to climb up the mountain. It was cold and raining and everything. He finally gets to the top of the mountain to see the seer. You know, this guy sitting there and he's got his legs crossed, you know, and he's looking in the sun. He's wearing a turban and all that. He says, seer, what is the story of life? What is the answer? And the seer turned to him and said, son, life is a malted milk. Silly. Ridiculous. He climbs back down the Mountain became a used car dealer. Crying. It's gotta be, it's gotta be more to it than that. You can't sit around and laugh and joke all the time. Play guitars, banjos, kazoos, pianos, all that stuff. Cut out all the racket in the next room! That's better. Guy can't even think here. Sometimes. 
sometimes you 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 gotta you gotta get the you gotta get a little bit closer to reality. See, like the other day, this guy, and, and, you know, sometimes guys do, with not knowing they do. You know, they get close to it, they get they nibble around the edges. Like this guy in Indianapolis the other day. I'm reading about here. It says Indianapolis. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you want to kick it all over. This guy in Indianapolis, his name is Norman. Ah, oh, you know, it's not easy being named Norman. And and this guy's named Norman. See. And he lives in Indianapolis. Now, he's got two things going against him. Not only is he named Norman, he's living in Indianapolis. Oh, boy, Indianapolis. Victory Circle. You ever been Victory Circle in Indianapolis? All them birds flying over and dropping all that stuff all over everybody walking around in Victory Circle. Victory over what? You know, victory. Schmictory. Why, you know, not far, not, not, not more than two blocks away from where I'm sitting here on this park bench. There's a place called the Victory Newsstand. Victory Newsstand. Little fat guy there standing by the Victory Newsstand and he's selling papers for three cents a piece and a nickel and a dime. You know, big deal when he sends a, sells a magazine for a quarter. He's got a big sign. Victory News Magazine. <laughs> Victory Schmictory. Victory Circle. Victory Arch. You know what you can do with your Victory. Norman, living in Indianapolis. 28 years old, the guy is his Victory there. He told police yesterday that only a show of force, I'm quoting here, Seemed to be the only way to cope with the machine that did him in. That's what Norman said. Doing his best for all of us and we're laughing. Norman, Indianapolis. Tonight we salute you. Not many guys are saluting you, Norman, but we are. Blow that horn. That's it. Let them know it. Hello, Norm, Indianapolis, you're a long way, you know. Boy, you don't hear nothing in Indianapolis. Hey, Norman! Come out and play, Norman! Norman is not playing. Norman told officers that he lost a chance last September to job in Washington because he flunked the lie detector test. Since then, police quoted him as saying resentment had been building up in Norman. Against the machine, he says, was telling rotten, crummy lies about him. Crummy machine! And Thursday night, Norman said he made up his mind to get revenge. And a worker in the travel agency next door to the office heard a shattering noise at about 10 p.m. It was a glass door being kicked in. Wielding a hammer found in the agency's office, the intruder, guess who, was laying waste to the place, looking for that crummy, rotten, lying machine. Desks were torn over. Keys ripped from typewriters. Mirrors cracked. But the main target was that crummy, rotten, portable lie detector. It was smashed to smithereens. And paper from its guts was strewn throughout the entire fourth floor, a whole block. Police Lieutenant Jenkins said by the time he arrived, and I'm quoting him here, oh, it was a mess. Everything he could get to with that hammer was wrecked. Oh, boy. Especially that machine. Proclaiming that the machine was telling lies 
Norman was taken off by the police, who charged him with breaking and entering, and they are considering a main charge of aggravated assault and murder against him. So, Norman, tonight we can only say, oh, crying out loud, man. We know. And there's no going back, Norman. There ain't going to be no fighting. And forget it, Dad. You're looked upon as a kook and a nut in your neighborhood. And you will be a kook and a nut. As long as you hit machines. You know what they said about Captain Ahab. Just because he went after the crummy whale. And you know what that whale did to his foot. <laughs> oh, boy. Believe me. Wait till one time they write a story called, um... Called, um... Gee, I don't know what you could call it. Can't call a coke machine Moby Dick. I don't know. Maybe you could. I could think of a couple of names I could call it. But nevertheless, they're going to write this story about this guy who chased this rotten, crummy machine from one IBM, one national cadre office to the next. And until finally he caught it. He ran into it and he threw the harpoon at it. The next thing you know, he was seen going down the chute, pinioned against the graphs, lost forever in the great sea of statistics. Uh-oh. And the next day, somebody starts to write a book, and it says, Call Me Ishmael. All I know is that I one time worked for this nut who got this job. <laughs> I told you this program was for lunatics and people who like red cabbage. Possibly both. <laughs> I'm afraid I don't tell you no comforting things like Bob Dylan. I don't promise no no paradises in the sky. No pies in the clouds. Let's face it, friend, it is a madhouse. And we are all in it. And, by the way, for good reason... That's right. That's a that's a raspberry. That's all all deliberate, friend. <laughs> oh, that's it. He almost hit it, didn't he? Oh, and now what? Yeah, there are a couple of walls down around him. See? He learned to blow the high note, and all it did was break all the windows, and he wound up in the pokey. Just thought you ought to know. But in the middle of the week, the natives get restless. Right, they sure do. You know, I had an experience one time. I, I don't know how many of you have ever developed an abiding hatred. You wonder why, from time to time, I use as a symbol here the Coke machine? Have you noticed how many people... Yeah. Have you noticed how many people, when they use symbols, they use uh, computers? How many guys have ever had trouble with a computer? Now, honestly, I mean, a, a real, because computers are totally impersonal. It's almost impossible to have trouble with a computer. Now, really, it's like having uh, trouble with a cloud. Huh? You just can't. Oh, you can have trouble with the log, I will agree. You can have trouble with the little cards that come out of the computers, but not the computer itself. Now, I, I, uh, I've taken as my symbol the Coke machine because I one time had a, oh, wow, a, a sock dollager. 
of a, uh, gee, that's a great phrase there, socknology. I had to <laughs> charge her on write a whole folk song on that. Uh, speaking of sock dollars, that reminds me, this is <laughs> W.O.R., your AM and FM station in good old New York, just a lonesome traveler. Sir, as a 2,500-year-old brewmaster, you must have known many women in history. I'm fascinated with Helen of Troy and that big wooden... Trojan horse. Yes. Right. Well, Helen of Troy was instrumental in the design and building of the horse. She charged 1,400 piastres to design and build a horse, and then they would, it was went to arbitration because the supports, the beams in the horse's chest caved in and killed 14 soldiers, you know. There was, it was a big case. And finally, she was sentenced to prison for cheap materials and labor. And that's the true story of Helen of Troy, New York. <laughs> that's really ridiculous. Uh, but I just can't make a connection between a wooden horse and spirited Valentine beer. Well, try a string. If you want to start living a life that's livelier, live it with spirit. Valentine beer. There's more spirit to it. All right, friends. Uh, would you please uh, give me my echo chamber in there one moment, please? Now, hold it. I'll tell you when to give it to me, Bob, okay? I'll give you the cue. All right, friends? Here is our $50,000 mystery sound. Very good. And the clue to the $50,000 mystery sound is that it was not the sound of a match being struck on a little old lady sitting in shrafts on 47th Street's girdle. Now, let's see. We have uh, here Rover. Uh, would you please give me that echo chamber again? Rover, Schmover, double bover, Pipkins all agree. Rover, Rover, double bover, Pipkins all agree. Uh, that is the new singing commercial which just arrived from Leeds, where they make the Rover motor car. I have no idea what the silliness is about, but they do make a great car. It's Rover, the Rover 2000. And uh, what a silly name for a car, Rover. Only the English would name a car Rover. We like to name our cars things like Tempest, Storm, you know, Excalibur, Dynamo, Anger, and all that. They name their cars Rover. Oh, I think that's a great name, actually, Rover. Somehow, Rover is never going to kill you. You know, Rover, Schmover. Oh, oh Rover. Uh, it's the Rover 2000, which is a truly great automobile. And somebody wrote um, a note on the uh, wall of the John in the limelight. And I went in there the other day in the John, and it said right there in a very strategic place, it says, Shepard, when are you going to get your Rover, phony? <laughs> Uh, don't worry, Dad. I'm going to get it. I'm playing it cool. Uh, this is the Rover 2000, a great English automobile built for people who like really fine machinery. Beautiful uh, driving characteristics and unbelievable safety. But more than that, it's a true Gran Turismo machine designed to move over uh, distances at a fast pace at extreme safety for people. Okay, Rover. Now, let's see. We have uh, another thing here. Oh, one more. Oh, this is the last day you can get your, uh, the last day that you can buy my my uh, infamous Christmas story, which tells the truth, boy, about Christmas. I'll tell you, rips aside the veil of chicanery, lays it bare. It's in uh, the current issue of Playboy, which is the Christmas issue, and this is the last day. It goes off the stand the 15th, right? 
You better get on the stick. It's the Christmas issue. And one more thing. Yeah, we're, we're going to be tomorrow night at Seton Hall in the Orange... Oh, well, isn't... Oh, that's right. This is Wednesday. They're crying out loud. We're going to be there Thursday. <laughs> we have a lot of people standing around in the rain. We're going to be Thursday at Seton Hall, which is uh, in Orange. Is West Orange? South Orange, New Jersey? And we're going to be at the Student Union Building. And uh, it's first come, first serve. And they have 16 seats available. We'll be there... And we figure that all eight of you will be fist fighting it out there for the front row. And uh, it's at South Orange Seton Hall. <laughs> oh, boy. We're going to rip aside the veil of chicanery over there, too. And uh, let's see. That's at 8 o'clock, right? 8.30? 8.30. I better be straight by the time we get over there. <laughs> I can see me showing up there at 4 in the afternoon, you know, or fooling around. I show up at 2 in the evening or 2 in the morning. Or all right. So, you know, let's get back there. Okay? All right. All right, now you got the whole scene. Why I, I I must I must bring this out now into the open. Why I have this thing on the, I got a letter from the uh, Coke people, Pep, no Coca Cola the other night, and they said, Shepard, what do you got? Come on, get a layoff, will you? We're just you know trying to sell this stuff, and it's good stuff. And you just, I have been drinking Coke for so long that, uh, well, I suspect that one day when many of us are found, when they begin to dig up our fossils. They will notice a strange deposit in the marrow that looks suspiciously like the essence of, of Coke bean or whatever it is that they put in that stuff. And I'm this kid, see, I, I'm, I, I had never, I, up to this point, I had felt that machines were my friend. Now, almost all kids feel this. You know, kids are fascinated by machines until they're undone. Uh, almost every kid loves to, you know, he fools around with the Pinker toys and he, he makes little electric motors and everything else. I'll never forget the time I made an electric motor. And, uh, I made it out of a, out of a plan that was published in the Open Road for Boys. No, Boys Life. Boys Life. Old Dan Beard. I wonder how many of you remember. Hey, there's a piece of trivia. How many of you know who Dan Beard was? That's right. You give me a dumb look. What kind of an American are you? Uh, how many remember one of the, one of the really, uh, this guy, seriously, there's a man named Dan Beard who became almost to degree, un, unnumbered millions of kids. Boys, not girls, boys. He was almost legendary. In fact, I, I was amazed when a few years ago when it was announced that Dan Beard died. I mean, it would be like, you know, reading in the paper, all of a sudden, they have a big obituary in the Times. It says, uh... Captain Ahab. <laughs> you know, when you read about Ahab, who was born in 1702 in Worcester, Mass. And, and you know, you wonder, what the heck? I thought this this is, a, you know, almost a fictional character. Well, well, Dan Beard, for years, looked out at me from Open Road. No, Boy's Life. These two magazines. Open Road for Boys was the big rival to Boy's Life. And I remember old Dan looking out of the covers of Boy's Life at me. He had this big beard. He had this funny hat on. And uh, there would be, uh, above the, above his name, it would be the name of his column, which I will leave for you trivia fans to pinpoint. And underneath it, it said, uh, uh, Uncle Dan has handy hints and kinks for when you're really out there fist fighting your way through the jungle. And underneath it says, uh, questions. And there would be questions from other kids. It would say, uh, Dear Dan Beard, how do you skin a Kodiak bear? Holy smokes. I mean, do you realize what kind of a sense of inferiority yearning, what sense of, of defeated angst 
this causes among kids who are walking around in the pool room world. All you can hear is the sound of guys being thrown out of the bowling alley. And you read, it says, Dear Uncle Dan, please give me detailed instructions on how to skin a Kodiak bear. Last week, I had two Kodiak bears, which I was unable to skin because I did not have the proper instructions. Now, and then Dan Beard says, why, yes, we often run into that problem here in the main office. Skinning Kodiak bears, polar bears, and other bears of that type are very simple once you know how to do it. Take your big hunting bear skinning knife and then, oh, my big hunting bear skinning knife. The only knife that I had was a knife that had a two pearlescent maroon uh, jewels on the side of it, see? And it was in the shape of a lady's leg, this knife. You ever seen that kind of a lady's leg it looked like? And, and you could use the heel for a bottle opener, see? It's very handy. My Uncle Carl gave it to me. And he taught me that, you know, uh, kids are always taught when they're in the Boy Scouts on how to look at the moon and the sun and to tell what direction they're in, look at the North Star. I never could look at, I always faked it. Uh, I, I knew I knew in what general direction in the sky, you know. And so when Mr. Gordon, the scoutmaster, would say, uh, uh, Shepard, Moose Patrol, Junior Patrol, Lady Moose Patrol, please point out the North Star to us. And he'd be testing me. See, I'd say, uh, Mr. Gordon, it's... Uh, I'd squinch my eyes together and I'd wave my hand. I'd say, uh, there, over there. He said, very good. And now, tell them how you... Detected where the North Star was. Well, I knew all the jargon, see. This is why you take the, with a big dipper, the handle of the big dipper, you run down the side, up like three stars up, you go past Cleodes, you turn right at Western Avenue, and then you go directly that way. There it is. They see North Star. Very good. Well, I faked my way through the nature world. I hooked it up all the way. I have never been able to really tell what side of the trees moth is on. You know, I hooked it up all the way. And that, did somebody know who Dan Beard was? Good old Dan. Well, by George, I, I'm, I'm in that world, you see, and, and uh, kids at that age love machines. And one time in Boy's Life, they published a diagram on how you can build your own electric motor. And all you had to do, you had to get these little pieces of metal, which you, you can take off of a sardine can. Told you how to cut them out, two inches long half inch like this and you nail them down to a little piece of wood you know two little things you make an armature out of a nail around which you put insulation and you wrap this wire around one thing another little binding post and all that and I am building this thing so, you know, I'm just sitting there on the front porch and I'm making this little motor and there's the magazine there old Uncle Daniel's face is looking out at me and uh, I had a battery dry cell big dry cell battery thing. and I finished the motor and turned it around and we're supposed to put Two little drops of three-in-one oil at the crucial points, the bearings, which I did. But it spun pretty good, you know. Spinning with my finger. And then I took the dry cell battery. It says you have to test with your finger first. I took the dry cell battery. I put the two, the two leads across the binding post. And it went. Didn't move. I was getting something, though. And then I clicked it with my finger. And it went. By George, it went. It was the aha experience. I mean, you do not know that the, the, the terrific surge of excitement, of heady, uh, almost uh, maniacal giddiness that flows through the veins when you first see something that you made out of little pieces of sardine cans. And it's going. 
really going? Holy smokeroonies, you know. Wow, we see, I made this more. Well, oh, one more piece of trivia. I mean, you know, you learn all these things when you're a Boy Scout. How many of you know how to test a battery? Like a little transistor battery, you know, those little 9-volt batteries. How many of you know how to test a battery to find out if it has any current in it? If it has any pizzazz in it? And you don't have any meters, anything like that, no, no radio to test it with. How do you test it? That's not the way. You don't just put your finger in your mouth. What's that? That'll, that won't do it. Now, come on now. Now, see, I learned all these little, these are little tricks that you learn when you're, when you're working your way through this technological world. <laughs> I love it, you know, I'd love to see, did you see that great picture in the paper the other day when, when this, when this rocket was a fish, you know, this giant rocket, everybody's watching it, nothing happened, somebody left a cover on and all that. You know, somehow they, you, you, I have a little more faith in the space program. Guys are leaving covers on and stuff. <laughs> somehow I always had a feeling that this was a sort of a maniacally accurate operation and everything. Did you see that great picture in the paper? They had the bottom of this rocket. It looked like about the, oh boy, it looked like about the size of the base of the pyramid. You know, fantastic machine. And there were three guys' feet sticking out of the bottom. Did you see that? The mechanics working on it, just three guys. And they didn't say anything at all, just as workmen. Working on it. They weren't scientists. They were not engineers. They weren't spacemen. They weren't astronauts. They were just three guys. You can see their overalls and grease on their feet, and they're working on the bottom of this thing. And somehow I identified with those guys. I identify far more with those guys than I do with uh, what's his name, Chris Crap, or uh, what's that other guy, uh, Colonel uh, something or other, who's always saying, "Hello, ah, Mercury Control Seven, Gemini Five, Six S Nine, JS Seven, Twenty Two Fourteen, please." Over and out, Roger, guys. Yeah, I don't identify with this guy any more than I identified with Buck Rogers, you know, or or, or any other uh, fantastic character. You know, so I'm working, you know, I'm beginning to feel my way through the machine. I loved it, see, right away. Well, I'm living in a world, too, where I'm sitting in the back seat and watching my old man drive the car. And uh, there was nothing more lovable than the Oldsmobile we had. We had this Oldsmobile, see, and, of course, cars in those days had a little more... Uh, personality than they do now. They, the, uh, everything. Oh yeah, there was such a thing. How long has it been since you've seen a guy driving around the streets with lemons all over his car? Lemons, yeah, lemons. Don't you know what that even means when a guy's driving with lemons hanging all over his car? You don't know what that means? Well, not more than a month and a half ago, I came into Newark Airport. And I came out of the airport terminal there, and there sitting in front of the terminal was a brand new car, and the guy had painted lemons all over it. On the top, on the side, he had lemons hanging off the, the, the rear bumper, real lemons. He had lemons hanging off the front, and he drove down the street, and everybody was watching him and cheering him. You don't know what that means? Holy smokes, I've got an engineer who does not know what the great symbol of the lemon is. Have you ever played slot machines, Bob? What happens when a lemon comes up? That's right. <laughs> well, that's what they used to call them cars. <laughs> there was such a thing as a lemon. And, and uh, we, we had several guys in our neighborhood. I, uh, I knew one guy that drove this car, lived about four or five blocks. Down. It was Mr. Schaefer, as a matter of fact, who was a mailman. Mr. Schaefer bought himself this car. And new cars were very rare in our neighborhood. And he bought himself this new car. And three days after he got it, it started to make that funny noise. And two weeks after he got it, the left rear brake just stopped working, never worked for the whole duration of the car after that, just wouldn't go. 
and it was making funny noises, and the paint peeled, and it started to rust out the chrome. Do you know that for as long as that guy drove that car, which was like five years in our neighborhood, and he finally moved out, it was the only car that was permanently painted with lemons. Just like some guys have maroon cars, other guys have green cars. He had a car with lemons all over the outside of it, you know, and he just let everybody know. I guess today most guys don't want to admit that they bought themselves a turkey. They just won't concede it, you know. They're driving a car that is pure lemon. You could just squeeze it right into the martini, and it wouldn't make any difference. But he won't admit it, so he just he hangs out. And so, of course, I'm living in this world where all the, all the people loved cars. They loved machines. Everything was great, hunky dory. And and one one summer I am working in the steel mill. Now the steel mill is a giant machine in itself, and I grew in the nutty way to kind of love this machine. I'd walk along next to the open hearth, as on one side, and over on the other side is the blast furnace and the Bessemer converter. And I knew that steel mill at one point better than I knew the proverbial back of my hand. I knew every inch, every office. I knew the smells in every office. I knew I knew the looks on the face of every shipping clerk in the whole steel mill. It had twenty six thousand people in it. Up and down the iron stairs I'd run, carrying my mail. And then one day, Mr. Moss, the boss, called me in, and he said, "Chimp, we're putting you on the city office route." Well, do you know what that means? The city office route, friends, to a mailboy in the steel mill. Is roughly the equivalent if you're working, say, in the、uh, Pitcairn, Pennsylvania office of Young and Rubicam. If you can imagine that. And one day the boss points to you and says, "You are going to Mad Ave. We're sending you to the main office." And I was given the job of taking the mail between the big plant, which was in Indiana Harbor, Indiana, and Chicago, LaSalle Street. This bastion of officialdom, where the buildings were all made out of marble, and they had these fluorescent lights, and people walked around with quiet tread. Men wore white shirts and had gray hair. Nobody in our family ever had gray hair, you know. Kind of, they all looked like Judge Hardy and people like that. And and the women were tall and thin and had sort of that that creamy look of models. They didn't look at all like my mother or Esther Jane Albury. And I was sent to take by myself every day. I was to to take the mail in a big leather sack that had a had a lock on it, had a chain on my arm, and official stuff. And I put on my suit. Up to this point, I'd been running around with this little hat, you know, with a funny little bill with the earmuffs and the safety shoes and the safety goggles. I was being taken out of the front lines and being sent to the rear echelon Pentagon world. I put on my suit. I put on my white shirt. I put on my beautiful Tom McCann Scottish brogues, which were very big, you know, with the with the、uh, with the fringe on the end of the uh, uh, <laughs> the the. You remember the, the the fringe they had on the end of the、uh, shoelaces? This little thing there, and I had my Scotch brogue and I had my Argyle socks. My hair was combed. My mother says, "Now you you know you're going to the city. You you have to dress very good. They're going to expect you to." And I sat and I. Rode all the way on up to to the city, this legendary place that I'd always heard about. I'd always sorted mail for it, called City Office. That went into that big special purple box. You never touched that stuff, and there were great names of people you heard of there: P. D. Block, Joseph Ryerson. These were legendary names in the steel world. And now I was going 
to Xanadu. I was going right there. And so as I rode on the on the on the interurban train, we had this thing called the South Shore. They gave me a whole book of tickets. I'm riding the soul my soul is singing. No, 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 I want singing music, please. My soul is Oh, there it comes. Oh boy. That's kid on the way to city office music. And I'm sitting there very importantly. I've got my mail bag on my on my hip. And uh, I even did something which up to that point I had never done in my life. I bought myself, personally, me. I bought my first newspaper. That's a big moment, you know. All the other newspapers I ever saw were newspapers were all over the floor that my mother used after she scrubbed. Either that or my old man would lay him around in the living room and I'd read the jokes, you know, the funnies out of it. That's about it. But I bought a newspaper. And I sat there and pretended that I was interested in all those figures. Those long lines of figures. It said, business page. Oh. These are great moments in the lives of small people. good. You got the scene. Well, I finally arrived in front of the main office itself. Big brass doors, you know, the kind that revolve. And above it, it said, Inland Steel. Inland, Inland Steel. Steel. National, National office. Well, of course, I lived in a steel mill town. And now I was looking at where it all came from. And the building stretched up into the sky as high as I could see. And I went through the revolving door. And there to my left was the directory. Great, great rows of names, all with big white block lettering. And they were names that were literally legends in my town. These were the names of men who could fire whole communities. If they wanted to, some of these names could have fired the whole state of Indiana and did quite often. They could have bought all of Gary and they did. They elected presidents and there I am standing there looking up at and I have got in my little leather sack next to me, I have got their mail. And so, I knew where I was to go. I was to go right up to the sixth floor, which was the executive suite. Exec, you know when I saw that, when I saw that title, uh, that book a few years back, executive suite. That's what they called it in Inland State. It was called executive suite. That meant the whole floor. All these big men had their great offices overlooking the financial district of Chicago. And I get in the elevator, I said, sixth floor. And the elevator man looked at me, a lot of official-looking people in the elevator. It was one of those elevators, you know, that's made out of brass, has all kinds of curly cues and little brass eagles and birds and anchors and ropes all carved out of brass and grapes, brass grapes and lemons and cherries and bluebirds and everything all over the place. And I'm riding up on this elevator. We get up to the sixth floor and whoop. The door opens. He says, sixth floor, all out. All out on the sixth. Let's go. Let him out. Then out I go. 
And I was the only one out on the sixth floor. And there I stood. I stood literally on them golden streets. You know that old song? Oh, them golden slippers. Oh, them golden slippers I was going to wear. When I gwines to meet along them golden streets. Oh, them golden slippers. There I stood in the golden streets. And it was marble. White marble on the floor. Big white marble walls. And all those those doors with just big, big squares of translucent glass. Dark maroon wood. Rich. And you could smell that, that office marble. Money. That rich power. You know, the smell of power. Of vicarious power. I don't mean the smell of gunpowder. That kind of power. I mean... The kind of power that's in pens and wastebaskets. The kind of power that's in file cabinets. And I walked down along this, this long corridor and I was looking for 604. 604, I repeat. 604. That was a... You know how numbers are so symbolic with us? Uh, James Bond would never have made it without that number. I'm, I'm serious, very serious about it. Everybody laughs. But that was a stroke of genius on Ian Fleming's part, probably intuitive. But the term 007 made James Bond. There have been a lot more interesting private eyes, counter-spies, uh, espionage experts, many of them far more adept sexually than Bond, who had better taste in wines and everything. But he had the number. Double-O-Seven. Numbers excite us. Well, 604 was a number that struck terror and envy. It struck other little ringing, tinkling temple gongs in everybody's mind, way out there in the dark fastnesses of the works. 604 meant this was where it was. This was the throne room. And this, inside that door, was where all of it came from. This was it, the center of it. So in through the door I go. And right there inside the door, there's a girl. It was my first receptionist. She says, yes. I said, uh, I'm a shepherd from the works. <laughs> and uh, I've got the mail here. <clears throat> Plunk. I lay it down. She says, oh, yes, yes, indeed. And she had this special key. She reaches down, takes the special brass key, opens up my, my little uh, attache pouch and takes out these rolls of official orders and things. And I'm standing there guarding it, looking very official. She says, uh, uh, Mr. Myers will be out in just a minute to talk to you. Why don't you just uh, wait around out here? A couple of minutes, he'll be with you. I said, yeah, okay. And I could see all these desks and all these official-looking people that are doing things. They've got baskets in and out. And in the back, I could see even more, importantly, I could see thick carpets, great doorways, important people walking around. I'm a kid. I'm 16. And remember, I love machines up to this point. And I sort of casually walk around and say, well, <laughs> gee whiz, wow. Hey, my main officer, someday, boy, someday, I'll have my desk here. And I walk out through the door, and right by the doorway is a Coke machine. I put a dime in it, and I waited, and went, and you know, it laid down that, it was the kind that laid the little, the little paper cup down, and the coke went, oh, I 
take the coke out there? And no sooner had I taken the coke out when another cup floats down. I got two cokes. I got one in each hand. And now I'm standing with two cokes. And then... I got three cokes. I put one down and I've got another one in each hand. And then it went... I got 17 cokes. I am surrounded by cokes like mushrooms on all sides. And then it went... Coke after Coke after Coke after Coke after Coke. They kept coming out one after the other. That nice, friendly little machine that said the pause that refreshes. The pause that refreshes. And people kept walking by. Who's the nut? <laughs> Who's the nut? I had 50 Cokes, 75 Cokes, 100 Cokes. So help me, I am raising my hand to the all-eternal heavens. I had 147 Cokes before that machine just started to go, Ah, ah, and it was squirting air. Ah, ah, ah. And there I stood. And Myers came out and he took one look at me and he says, You know the, the new one from the, the works? And he looked down at all my cokes. He says, Boy, they sure send it all kinds around here, aren't they, Charlie? <laughs> <laughs>